0: 1 Peter 3 verse 15 if you're following along 1 Peter 3 verse 15 in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you yet do it with gentleness and respect the second is from Psalms 19 Psalm 19 the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge the law of the lord is perfect reviving the soul the testimony of the lord is sure making wise the simple good morning good to have everybody out today we have a whole lot of folks gone i think maybe a third of our church is gone maybe maybe more than that but You are here and we appreciate it. There's a lot of things you could have been doing this week. I mean, this morning that, um, you know, time is, we don't have a ton of it. And I I do appreciate it when you choose to come out and be with us. And hopefully you will uh, feel like it's time well spent as we try to understand more of what the Lord would have us do and how he'd have us live. Today, um, we're we're continuing our series based on the words of 1 Peter 3.15 Where Peter tells Christians in a part of Turkey in the first century um, in the Roman Empire that they need to be people who are prepared to make a defense for the hope that is within them. Um, If you're reading from the NIV, it may say something like prepared to give an answer. The New Living Translation prepared or ready to explain. At any rate, the word defense is the word from which we get apologetics. It's the Greek word apologia. And it is the idea of, of, you know, if somebody wants to know why you believe what you believe, or what, what's, tell me about this hope that's in you. Why are you, why are you living this way, or thinking this way, or feeling this way? Um, we don't just go, you know, teach his own. He says, be willing to talk about it and to articulate a cogent, coherent um, explanation. Um, so. You know, defense has a little bit of a a, a combative tone to it. We don't mean it in that sense. We just mean show why it's reasonable. Uh, In fact, that's why you see words like explain and answer uh, as well. So what does that mean? That's what we've been talking about and what we plan to talk about over subsequent weeks. And as we think about being faithful to this charge, we have to ask ourselves what kinds of questions or objections we need to be ready to answer. The list may have changed between the first century and now, right? Culture changes, society changes, we have all sorts of challenges that may be in principle the same, but the particulars, the way they manifest themselves could be different. Um, The charge remains, even if the list of things we should be ready to defend against or with reference to uh, has changed. And one area that we in our day often have to address uh, questions from is the realm of science and faith. Science in the Bible. Science and belief in Scripture. And so that's what we want to talk about this morning. Now most of us are not professional scientists. Um, I don't know if we have a single research scientist in our church. Daniel uses science in an applied way, uh, so he he would be in that category. Maybe there's something I'm not thinking of. you know, Bob Garrett used to be, he's a pharmacologist, so he would have been in that. He, but most people here, you know, I'm not a professional scientist, um, and yet science is very relevant to my daily life. Um, odds are some of you took a pill this morning or last week, and you're, maybe your, your health, maybe your life depends upon that medication. Guess who figured that out? You drove here in a car powered by an internal combustion engine or an electric motor, um, Who figured that out we 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 live surrounded by science all the time and in the modern west uh, much of our society and our 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 frameworks for thinking about things in fact are informed by science so it's very relevant whether we appreciate that or not and not being professional scientists we might feel overwhelmed by the task of defending the gospel or, or explaining our faith vis-a-vis a a scientific or purportedly scientifically based objection. You may think, how can I be up to that task or that charge? On the other end of the spectrum, some Christians minimize the relevance of science for faith altogether. Just poo-poo the whole idea of having to even worry about that. Let me caution folks in the latter camp against failing to appreciate the relevance of science until it's... Uh, the consequences become tragic. Until a friend or co-worker rejects Christianity because they've become convinced that science and the Bible can't both be true. Or worse, it could be your own child. Your own loved one. Whose exposure to real science brings on these kinds of doubts. I can't tell you the number of people I know um, who've called me up you know, young people around the country with this very question. Uh, I wasn't prepared for this when I left home, you know, at church or whatever. So we kind of have to, this is what Peter's saying, you you can't just disengage from the world and let religion be something that happens inside your head or inside a church building. It's relevant to the real world. Love your neighbor. (laughs) He's a real person, right next door, right, as yourself. Um, So we, we've got to think about these kinds of things. Now, science in our modern sense, which is the empirical investigation of, of the mechanisms underlying natural phenomena, right? That's a new thing. That's four or five centuries old. Um, late 1500s, early 1600s, at the earliest in early modern Europe, that's when what we think of as science started. But since then, numerous discoveries and theories have been regarded as threats to biblical faith. This painting on the screen here is, is by a Tuscan artist it's painted in the mid-19th century, a guy named Cristiano Bonti, and it's called Galileo Facing the Roman Inquisition. Galileo Galilei was a, uh, a, a, a person from North Italy, a, a scientist. He, wouldn't, he wasn't called a scientist then. He would have been called a philosopher because the word wasn't used that way then. Um, that's an even more recent uh, development. But he's facing the Roman Inquisition, the Roman Catholic Church, um, because of his views on astronomy, the Copernican view of, of the solar system, which were thought in his day to contradict not only mainstream science, but the Bible and the theology based on the Bible. And so uh, he, we'll talk more about him in a minute, but that's what that painting's about. Uh, the, the thing is, many such threats, quote-unquote, Things regarded as threats to Christianity in the Bible in centuries past are now accepted universally by Bible-believing Christians. Who here believes that the earth is the center of the universe and everything rotates around it? Anyone? I know there's like, you know, nut groups out there. No, no I don't mean that being disparaging. I mean that in the best way possible. <laughs> who, who still say, you know, the earth's flat and everything's rotating around it and all that, but I, I don't even know if yeah, maybe they are serious. But there's a tiny fraction of people that we thought were gone from the planet, I think, till a few years ago. Kind of a joke. But the most theologic and conservative Bible-believing Christian groups believe Galileo was right. Would they have believed that then? So, what are we doing? How are we re- responding now with things that 200 years from now we go, oh, that was like that. So you have to think critically about these things. People around us that we're supposed to be defending the gospel to are. And so we have a God-given responsibility to be ready to at least articulate some sort of explanation. How can we, this is our question for this morning, how can we tell the difference between scientific views that are actually incompatible with Scripture and those that aren't? And so today our our objective is, is a modest one, but I believe a crucial one. And that is to basically just lay down some basic parameters or guidelines for being able to tell the difference. Basically for having biblically delimited or biblically confined expectations about what we should find when we look at the relationship between science and the Bible. So what I want to do first of all, then, is look at the importance of framing the issue or these kinds of questions about science and scripture, science and religion, correctly? How do we even frame it or imagine what, what the issues are? Before you get into the particulars, how do you frame the whole question? This is huge in my view for getting our expectations right. A lot of times our problems come from having sort of misbegotten expectations before we even enter into the data or the details. Now Galileo was deemed a heretic for views that are universally accepted now as we just said. Following Copernicus in the early 1600s, he basically argues that the sun, not the earth, is the center of the solar system, that the earth revolved around the sun, not the other way around. Okay, the old view was called geocentrism, earth centered, uh, you know, heavenly body earth centered uh, solar system, and so on. He uh, disagrees with that, he's basing it on. Copernican model and then he's got these new Dutch telescopes that seem to confirm it when he looks at the heavens. Looks at the phases of Venus and all sorts of things. Anyway, why was he punished by the church? Well we can now see that the whole question that he was dealing with framed wrong. They couldn't see that then. Maybe he could and a few others, but most people could not. They framed the issue wrong. Part of it of course was he was up against false being defended. But there was also a big part of it that was faulty theology, namely, false assumptions about how science and Scripture are related. What each is trying to do in the first place. So didn't the Bible say, some of them argued against him, that the opposite of what he was saying, that the sun rises, the sun moves. Ecclesiastes 1.5, the Bible says, God's Word says, the sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The King James says the sun also rises. You may recognize that from a famous title of a novel, right? Um, Here it is, mic drop. They didn't have mics, but had they had one, they'd have dropped it. Cardinal Robert Bellarmine would have, boom, there you go. Roberto Bellarmine. Galileo argued that teaching astronomy wasn't the purpose of the Bible. So passages like this are not making a point about astronomy at all. It has a different goal, a different purpose. He was reported to have said, and whether he said this or these exact words are apocryphal, it doesn't matter because this was the burden of his argument. The Bible was written to tell us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. We're all nodding our heads. That's brilliant. No one was nodding their head then. They were going, "Mm mm-mm. Not no one, but not enough people to keep him from being punished, deemed a heretic. So why do we nod our heads like this now, but back then we would have gone like that? That's kind of what i want us to look at critically this morning. And it may make some of us uncomfortable. Just stay with it. Think about it. Let it percolate for weeks and months. Okay, uh, I assure you what I'm trying to do is shore up ways to defend the gospel, not tear it down. And some of the things that have passed for defenses have actually done more harm than good. Because we're hitching God to things that he never intended in the name of defending God. All right. One helpful notion in framing how we think about the the relationship between science and scripture is something called the two books notion. I know I've mentioned this here before. Francis Bacon, another key figure in the scientific revolution, a British fellow, around the same time, roughly, in one of his writings said that when we think about the study of nature and we think about the study of Scripture, what we're really reading or studying are two different books that God wrote. God didn't just write one book, Scripture. He wrote another book, Nature. Here's his statement in a 1605 work. He says, Let no man think or maintain that a person can search too far or be too well studied in the book of God's word or in the book of God's works. This is his word. His works are what we see when we sit out in our pavilion and look, look, is that north? Into that woods with massive trees. Isn't it beautiful out there? those are god's works his works are the starry heavens you know that the james webb telescope is is bringing into even greater relief at greater distances to greater degrees of wonder among us newton says these are both the revelations of god and i not newton bacon i should say did i say in Fran, uh, isaac newton the whole time no. okay good sometimes i say things that are different from what my brain is saying as you well know <laughs> Um, if you've been here very long. Um, all Bacon is doing right here is, is paraphrasing Psalm 19, which Corey alluded to earlier. I love it when people in different parts of the service that I have not talked to at all use parts of things I'm going to use in the sermon. It's, it's real, it happens almost every week, honestly. So two revelations, one author. That's kind of what Psalm 19 is all about. So if you look at the first half of Psalm 19, He's talking about the first book of God's God's authorship, nature, His works out in the world. The heavens, I want you to notice what I have in yellow here. Notice the verbs. Notice what the physical works of God, natural phenomena, are doing. What what does the psalmist say they're doing? The heavens declare. Well, declaring is is a speech word, right? That's a communication word. That's a language word. That's a word of revelation. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. The pattern of day and night and regularity, and this ordered regularity that we see in nature, is a revelation from God. It's a communication. It's not as exact and precise, and doesn't tell us about ethics and things like that as much, nearly so much as Scripture does, but it's nevertheless a revelation from God. You can't really say, I believe this is the Word of God, this is a revelation from God, if you're going to deny the many sections of this book which say, that's a revelation from God too, because then you're denying this. They stand or fall together. And that's that's what Bacon was noticing. He says they don't really have a voice, God's works in nature don't, but they still have a voice. Verse 4, their voice goes out through all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. And then he starts talking about how the sun moves across the sky every day and apparently circles what they thought the earth to be, which is a flat earth on pillars. The Bible refers to that several times. With a dome over it, the firmament, the rakia. Um, That's kind of ancient view of the world. You know, they don't have spaceships to go out and look at it and that sort of thing. Um, He says the sun just does that every day. And it's testifying to the God who made it. And then in the second half of this psalm, he talks about the more specific revelation of God, which is not nature, but Scripture. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. We sang a song, Randy led. Oh I my mean, goodness, this is all tied together. Weird. The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing. So the nature testifies to the glory of God. And this God happens to be somebody who wants to have a relationship with you, who has given you another revelation, another book to read, Scripture, which is teaching you how to be a wise soul, a heart of joy, eyes that are enlightened, a soul that is revived or renewed by the grace of God. Two books, one author. Two revelations coming from one mind. So what does that have to do with what we're talking about? Well, as these two books are written by the same author, as they originate in the same divine mind, we shouldn't expect them to contradict each other, right? Somebody thinks, well, well," but it does seem like science has contradicted religion, and religion has contradicted science. So what's going on with that? Well, an answer, a possible answer, I think the answer, just my my two cents is that when we see science and religion, science and scripture in apparent contradiction, what's really going on is either one or the other or both have been misread. Somebody's not reading the books of God correctly. Scientists are the one who read the book of nature. And all you gotta do to, is take a history of science course or just kind of exist as a human to know science has changed its mind on things. By the way, sidebar, that's the glory of science. I'm about tired of the argument, well, science changed. That's the whole point. It's not woodenly allied to some dogmatic authority. That's the beauty of science. It's self-corrective. That's kind of the whole point. So scientists would go, duh, aren't we awesome because we're willing to change our mind when we see new evidence. It's are supposed to do that. Called growth, right? But we all know there's been older views of science, scientific racism, eugenics, all this stuff in American history that were mainstream Harvard, Yale science that we now know, science knows, and the rest of us know, was a bunch of bunk. They sincerely believed it. It looked like the data was going that way for them with all their biases and whatnot. So, scientists can misread their book, Nature. They can misinterpret it. Guess what? Theologians and Christians and you and I can misread this book. You ever changed your mind about what you believe the Bible teaches? Hopefully you have if you've been around very long. Um... Protestants, by definition, think the Bible was misread for centuries because there was a Protestant Reformation <laughs> over against the Roman Catholic Church. So, and presumably a lot of folks in different denominations think theirs is right or they wouldn't be there and it doesn't agree necessarily with some of the others. So we all tacitly know a person can misread the The Bible itself says be careful not to twist the Scriptures. Paul, uh, was it? Peter says that some of Paul's writings are really difficult to understand, but that doesn't give us license to twist them. Remember that section in 2 Peter 3? So it's possible to misread either book. And when there's an apparent contradiction, what has happened is either the book of God's works in nature or the book of God's word, scripture, either or both has been misinterpreted. If they're properly interpreted, they're not going to be in contradiction because they come from the same mind. Now let me what I want to focus in on now is kind of we're kind of triangulating down to this question, it, 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 this problem, and that is that one of the main ways that Bible readers, at least modern Bible readers, read Bible texts, is to force onto what are really ancient documents, ancient texts. Everything in the Bible is ancient. We impose upon that our modern questions and demand that they answer our modern questions even though they may or may not have been intending to address those questions in the first place. You follow me? The the Torah, Genesis, you know the first five books of the Old Testament, the Israelite Torah was not written to me. Now it was written for me, if I'm a Bible believer, it wasn't written to me. That's different. First Corinthians was written not to me. It was for me but only derivatively after it was addressing certain things in Corinth. It's occasioned by certain historical situations and problems. And only by going there first do I have the right to then extrapolate what it might mean principle-wise for me. Uh, We've got to go to the then and there of Scripture before we come to the here and now. That's just a hermeneutic you know, interpretive principle hermeneutic soundness. Okay, so what do we do? We, we take our modern questions and we impose them onto the ancient texts of the Bible when they may not have been necessarily concerned with the same questions. And so that's my second point. We've got to respect the questions the Bible's authors are addressing. How do you know what those questions or issues, what, what their agenda or purpose for writing whatever biblical document is under investigation is or was? Well, the only way to find that out is to go into the document itself and let it, the, the internal evidence disclose itself to you. I can't just come out here from my experience and go this must be what god would want to talk about now let's go read his word and see not see just demand that borrows so much trouble for christians it has in the history of science and religion about as much as anything in other words when when addressing nature or natural history science and scripture have different purposes Fundamentally. They both address the same subject matter sometimes. The Bible doesn't talk about nature and natural history all the time, but it does occasionally. Psalm 19 is all about that. Genesis one and two are very much about you know, the cosmos and where it came from, right? And what humanity's place in it and the animals and different things. But most of the Bible is not talking about that. When it is talking about nature or natural history, it is talking about similar subject matter that, that modern science is, is investigating. That doesn't mean they're asking of it the same questions. The same subject can be explored from different angles in pursuit of different types of information. Let me give you an illustration. Isn't it possible to map the same terrain in different ways? in the pursuit of different kinds of information. In other words, you go to you know, talk to cartographers or, or a geographer, there are all sorts of maps and atlases that you can come up with, that people generate. And they're, they're different lines of research, even though they're still maybe looking at the same chunk of planet Earth. So for instance, we'll, t- take, we'll take North Carolina as an example. This is an elevation map, the color Coding re- refers to various uh, elevations. So you know, over the darkest brown is 4,500 feet to 6,000 feet over in the Appalachians. Uh, you know, Down east in the, the coastal plain, the beach and all that, you've got zero to 150 feet. I don't know what our elevation is here, like 300 feet or something or something. It's low, <laughs> right? That, that's what that map is intended to, that's the truth it's after. The truth about elevation. What about this map? That's a highway map. Same chunk of land, same subject in a sense, different perspective, different questions are being asked of of the same state of North Carolina. And doesn't the fact that different questions, different kind of information is being sought change everything when it turns the functionality of those maps. Here's a third one. This is a county map. It's a political map, right? So you've got Wake County there is kind of that orange color, and right below that in light blue is Harnett County. I guess there's more Carolina fans in Harnett County. It's Carolina blue. So three maps. We could multiply. We could have 60 maps up here. You know, natural resources, uh, pollution levels, uh, you know, whatever. Yeah, the days of sunshine. There's just, it's in population, dem- demographic maps. There's all kinds. All right. I, some, I have some questions for you. Do these maps contradict one another? Somebody said no. No. They complement each other they don't really, we, we can see that even though they're mapping the same subject and, co- and returning wildly different pictures of North Carolina, right? they're not in contradiction because we're keeping in mind tacitly, if not you know, explicitly, we know in the back of our mind they're trying to do something different. We don't expect them to be in harmony. They don't contradict, but they also don't harmonize because it's like, you know, uh, you know, I don't know. It's trying to put two things together that don't really go together. They don't contradict at all because they're not related enough. Even though they're all covering the same terrain. Um, Which of these maps is true? They're all true. They're all just saying different things about the state. One more question. What kind of truth? I think this is kind of zeroing down to our, our, our question of science and religion. What kind of truth should we expect to find? It's about expectations going in by using each kind of map. In other words, if I got in my car and I was looking at the highway map and that's ha- all I had and I go west, you can't see it on here because it's such a small, it's so small, but on my computer, this is blown up and you can see it well. If I get on I-40 and I go, okay, I'm, I'm gonna follow I-40, I can see where it's going, I go west on I-40 West of Asheville, I see these, you know, nets with rock slides and the roads like this and there's mountains everywhere. Do I have any right to get, you know, all bent out of shape because my highway map didn't tell me about elevation changes? Is my highway map lying to me? No, it never said it was going to do that. The elevation map actually might say, you know what, there's some some pretty strong topographical relief here. There could be a rock slide. There could be some windy roads because look what happens. But it's not its job to tell me where the highways are. If I get in my car using the county map and I drive south from Wake County, do I expect the earth to change colors from orange to blue? (laughs) Is it lying to me because it's the same color? That map's a liberal map. That's a right wing map. No, it's just doing a different thing. What are the biblical texts on nature typically trying to do in terms of the author's purpose or editors, You know, depending on which book we're talking about? What agenda does the Holy Spirit have in, in, in inspiring the different editors or authors of each particular book we're reading? How do Psalm 19 about the two books of God, the heavens declaring the glory of God, and then the law of God, you know, restoring us and shaping us into what God imagined us to be and wanted us to, to you know, how He wanted us to be in His image. What does that text? What do the creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2? How, I should say not what, but how are those types of Bible texts trying to map? the territory. What's their goal? I don't have a right to just go, oh, you'd expect that it's from God. It'd say, Stop expecting and go read and just listen. Let your expectations be controlled by the text. We wouldn't know anything about any of this without the text. We wouldn't know who Jesus is to speak of. A couple of random, you know, Roman references here and there with little, little about him. Josephus said a thing or two, but you would know almost nothing about what Jesus wanted you to do without these texts. It's all about these texts. And so are we gonna to listen to what they say about our expectations? How is the way the Bible maps these territories different from the way modern science attempts to map the same te- territory? And the basic answer is that modern science seeks from its study of the natural world the underlying mechanisms of cause and effect. The regularly occurring natural mechanisms of cause and effect. It asks basically how do things work. Sometimes it projects back in history and says, when ask when. You know, geologists are gonna have paleontologists, they're gonna ask when, as best they can tell. Astronomers often ask when. And how? It's about the natural, empirically verifiable, repeatable mechanistic causations. What are the mechanisms, the how behind it all? Biblical texts on nature, instead, by contrast, usually are not addressing how and when they're addressing who and why. They're after a relationship between the almighty and his creation, namely his human creation. In the text we're talking about but but more than that and they're talking about why that's the case why you would would need why are you here right those are different kinds of questions so the first half of psalm 19 wants the reader to see in nature's splendor and order quote the glory of god that's what it's saying the heavens declare one of the most common old testament words in terms of an attribute of god is the word glory the chabod the substantiveness Just the weight, the the importance of God. Nature shows you that. That's not a science kind of question. Still studying nature. So it, it could be that the movement of the heavens, even though it's very regular and orderly and works kind of, pretty much, according to Newtonian mechanics, Newton, another believing scientific revolution figure, He said, you know, we're not interested in just saying God moves him with his fingers, even though there's poetic statements in Psalms that sound like that. We we believe that, but we don't know what he's doing. How is he doing that? And so he moves into natural science and said, there's these laws of mechanics that basically are about gravitation. That's how God did it. It's not different against God. It's just a different question. It's a different mapping of the same point. Not theology, but empirical science. In the second half of Psalm 19, you can see the movement of the text is toward human relationship with God. It starts talking about the law, the testimony, how it can renew you and revive you and make you wise and enlighten you and so on. That's the interest of Psalm 19, even though it starts off by talking about observations from nature. So we shouldn't look to, Galileo was right, we should not look to Psalm 19 for answers about questions of of, of astronomy. Why? It It didn't say it's trying to do that. What about Genesis 1 and 2? Extremely fraught topic. Has been for a long time in America, and it's part of the culture wars now, too. What isn't? Just to make things interesting. He says with huge sarcasm. You know how much anxiety that causes me, just that whole business? Anyway, whatever. Um, Genesis includes the the, the origin accounts of Genesis 1 and 2, which are part of Israel's Torah. Basically what that's trying to do is tell these ancient former slave people, the Israelites, the children of Israel, who they are in the world. And to give them an identity as the people of God, who happens to be the God who created everything. That's what the... Genesis is the first book of their law. They get it at Sinai right? We don't know when it was, the book, the text part was written, that could have been later, but the oral part of that is is from Sinai, and so this is not some kind of scientific statement. Hear me, everyone. Genesis is not a science text. If you think it is, I'd like to know why. Where in the book does it say that? that? That's an importation from without, And we have borrowed so much trouble trying to defend the language of Genesis and hook it to things that the Bible doesn't say you need to do. That you need to hook it to or wed it to. Like science, Genesis deals with nature, but we shouldn't expect answers from Genesis, no pun intended, that aren't in line with the questions the book itself has in its sights right answers in Genesis you know that's one kind of approach that assumes all sorts of stuff about Genesis that I do not believe Genesis is addressing I don't think you can get that from the text so what you're looking for is answers in Genesis that don't even fit the questions the author asks. before we start looking for answers in the Bible we need to look at why we have the questions we have do the questions come from the Bible Remember how many times when Jesus asked a question, what does he do? He tells a story. Another thing he does is he reframes the issue and asks a different question. Hey Jesus, why don't you tell my brother to divide my inheritance with me? Hey dude, why don't you stop being so covetous? Different question, issue change, still has to do with money. He has a different agenda. The Bible gets to set its agenda its own sense of what it's trying to do. What kind of map is it trying to draw? And when you read Genesis 1, you're not reading a, a book that wouldn't have made sense until 16 or 1859. Ancient Israelites, it's for them first. They have to, Does the real meaning not come about until we have the scientific revolution and we have all of our questions? They're just kind of wandering around wondering. Yeah. No, it's not, it's not addressing half the issues we try to make it address. We shouldn't expect answers from Genesis that aren't in line with the questions the book itself has in its sights. So when someone demands, for instance, that that the Genesis creation accounts be taken literally as scientific accounts of the exact mechanisms and timing of God's creative processes, I would suggest that they may just be borrowing trouble have we noticed that genesis 1 and genesis 2 don't paint the same picture if they're literal scientific accounts why is it that in genesis 1 plants are created on day 3 and humans are created on day 6 but when we come to the early verses of genesis 2 we're told there were no plants in the field because humans weren't there yet so which one am i going to take literally If I'm to defend Genesis as a literal scientific account of how things came to be mechanistically, like in a scientifically empirical kind of literal way, I didn't write Genesis 1 and 2. I didn't do that, that's not on me. It's, I'm talking about data here. They don't say the same thing. Out of the gate, the Bible doesn't say the same thing. Another example, anybody remember what day animals were created, the land animals rather? Was it before or after humans in Genesis 1? Before, right? Humans are the last, they're day six, the crown of creation, as we say. So in Genesis 1, you've already got the land animals, then humanity is created. And it says in Genesis 1, 26-28, in the image of God created he them, male and female created them. So presumably you've got the man and the woman, both created on day six. Doesn't it sound like that? I think every time everybody reads it, then you go to Genesis two and here's Adam with the animals already, doesn't have Eve yet. That's different. So my question is, if it's trying to be a a, a literal style science book that tells you here's how it happened, here's the mechanisms and and the when and the timing, which am I to defend? I don't know what to do with that. I don't think that's what's trying to do. I think it's a, a very, it's kind of a literary framework trying to make some basic questions about who God is. He made everything. You can't understand creation without God because God created everything. I don't, th- I don't think it's telling us how he did it or when he did it. In fact, how much time do I have? <laughs> Tree said, you're getting up there early. So make sure you know that. I'm like, the Lord has delivered them into my hands. No, I'll try to respect the time, but I, I will say this. We've talked about this before. I, I took this slide out, but I, do, I think I do want to mention it here. Have you noticed before, if you've been here before, we've talked about this a couple times, Matt, Matt Harbin and I were teaching Genesis, we brought this out in a little, sub, a little sidebar class that I led called Genesis, quote, colon, ancient texts, modern questions. And I, we kind of addressed some of this sort of stuff. There's six days of creation, right? What are they trying? Why is it portrayed the way it is? Have you ever noticed that day one, two, and three parallel day four, five, and six exactly? And seven, of course, is a day of rest. It's completed. God's now going to superintend the whole thing. But day one, two, and three are all about the realms God makes, the, hab- the, the habitations, right? The domains. Day four, five, and six fill those domains with their denizens the habitations are now given inhabitants the realms are given residents r-e-s-i-d-e-n-t-s the things that are going to live there it's 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 exact that's why you have the sun coming on day four when you've already got light on day one it's not trying to go away there was light we need to defend that there was light before there was a sun is that what it's trying to do or is it a literary kind of poetic arrangement. It sure looks like that. Does that mean it's not true? No, it doesn't mean it's not true. But what kind of truth is it? Is it a highway map or a topical relief map? They're both true. You already agreed to that, everybody. (laughs) You can map a territory in more than one way. You said that. Don't come to the Bible and science and go, now you can't. And there's a whole industry trying to do this, right? Not to you know, disparage anybody, but that the whole Ken Ham, Answers in Genesis, Young Earth Creation Science thing is assuming this. it's only one way to map it. And you need to know that there's a whole lot of other people thinking about those things besides that take. And sometimes your kids have been raised on one map, and they're gonna go somewhere else and see another map, and they're gonna go, I don't know about that preacher about mommy and daddy I love them but this looks like evidence let's be light on our feet and listen to what the scripture actually says it's trying to do instead of getting modern questions modern agenda modern culture war modern assumptions and then going back to the Bible and forcing it in there and and being left with things like a contradiction between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 I'm not okay with that maybe you haven't even seen that before it's pretty on the surface that's not a problem, though, if that's not what he's trying to do. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are kind of doing different things about the creation. In a more literary, theologically driven way. The agenda is theological. It's not, let me tell you the scientific mechanisms behind it. All right, I'm on a rant now, so we're getting off of that point. Okay, the fine line. One other question. This will take less time. Um, the third question, it's related, but it's. I, I feel like we need to spend just five minutes on this one. We need to resist the, it's really a modern dichotomy, but it's so popular now, it's almost just taken as, that's just the way things are, and it, it infests churches big time. It infests our language and our thinking big time. We've just accepted it, and it's very problematic, and I don't think very biblical. I'm going to tell you what I mean. The word dichotomy, in case that's a you know, fuzzy word to you, is just the idea that there's this hard division into two parts and they're mutually exclusive, okay? If things have been bifurcated in these two areas and they don't, they can't, there's, the, the border isn't permeable. They're mutually exclusive. And people dichotomize what they mean by natural over against what they mean by supernatural. As if there cannot, if it's one or the other, it's binary. That's a good word for what I'm looking for, it's binary. Let me give you an example. I think we've mentioned this before maybe. I can't remember when, but maybe in Genesis, the Genesis class. Well, that was a God thing. I probably said that this week, so don't feel judged. What do people typically mean? What do Christians typically mean when they say something's a God thing? Man, it was a God thing. Let me tell you about this. It had to be a God thing. What do we mean? Unpack it a minute. What's that? Big coincidence. Big coincidence. Big coincidence miraculous providence supernatural don't we kind of use god thing when we when we when we've exhausted all natural explanations it's it's got to be god because it can't be what it, so natural what's the assumption behind that if it's got natural causation what it's not god that's you you have to be saying that when you say that because I don't go like, oh, I dropped that. That's a God thing, gravity. <laughs> That's a God thing. I, I, I think God made gravity. He made the planets that have the gravitational pull, he made that table, you know, all, all that. So we're not very consistent with this, thank the Lord, because it's pretty, not very biblical thinking. It's, it comes from a kind of dualistic view of the world. That everything pretty much it's very enlightenment deism influenced everything pretty much is going along without god just natural stuff but every now and then something really weird happens providential miraculous supernatural that had to be a god thing because i'm not miracles are that in the bible right but is God not involved when something in the Bible isn't miraculous? Sometimes, even in the miracles, there appear to be a lot. Of, there appears to be a lot of nature involved. What was it that split the Red Sea so that Israel could cross through? A strong east wind. God directed it. It says, but He doesn't say, and it could have said, God went poof. Why do you use wind? One of the things that blows things all the time, anyway. If you look, a lot of miracles in the Bible, actually, God is using physical, he's using nature anyway, just in his own way. So that's a good question, too, is like, what exactly is the definition of of a miracle? Um, But that's for a different time. My point right now is that if we're going to say God things are just the things that are supernatural, we're going to be reasoning and operating in a very non-biblical way. Because the ancient people of the Bible did not think that natural, what we would call natural causation is not also God's. That belongs to God, too. Question. Um, well, sorry, I forgot I had this. Colossians says that in Christ, everything in the universe holds together. Remember that statement Jesus says, not a sparrow falls to the ground without your father. Do you, do you think by that verse that God's going, little sparrow, doom, I don't, when I see a sparrow dead on the ground or one that crashes into it, you know, you ever had a glass window, you clean too much? Like you kept saying and protesting, I don't want to clean that. We don't need to clean the windows, but your mom made you. And sure enough, a bird dies. That literally (laughs) happened at our house. We get the windows clean and then we'd hit, bam. Did God go, he's trying to fly that way, but God's going, no, bam. No, it just means God is in all of nature. Right? He's not just transcendent in the Bible. He's imminent as well. He's both. That's one of the great mysteries that the Judeo-Christian tradition puts forth, not tensions. It's a beautiful thing, actually. Psalm 139.13 says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. The psalmist is saying, even when I was a baby in my mom's womb, even when I was an embryo, God was doing that. God was forming. The you here is the Lord, he's addressing. You, Lord, are the one who was forming my inward parts and knitting me together in my mother's womb. That embryo that goes through all those crazy cool... Daniel, what's the... ontology recapitulates? Biological. Whatever it is. Yeah, ontology. Humans, humans go through in the womb all the basic you, you, orders. Yeah, you basically what in the world? Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. One of them it landed on Andy, Lord. <laughs> it it landed on Lord Take Control, which is a great illustration of this. I'm trying anyway. The basic answer is, as you're going through developmental stages in utero, you yeah. basically look like a fish and then an amphibian, and then right. reptile. You like have all these stages until you get to a mammal. Like in, we often grow stuff. Yeah. I'm sure all, we've all seen pictures. It, it basically goes through the major, is it orders of, yeah. of, of biology, the you know, kingdom class, all that. Um, Linnaean taxonomy stuff. I, what, where are we here, Jim? Okay. <laughs> um, anyway, Psalm 139 says that God is the one who's knitting the baby together, forming the baby, the embryo. But a lot of you, when you were expecting you know couples that are expecting they read books like the Mayo guy pregnancy which is completely science they go get sonograms they do all the stuff in other words the fact that god's doing that does that mean science has nothing to say about it we don't act like that we all go to those things at least most of us you're asking older people what's it like this trimester blah blah like there's there's things the bible doesn't tell us about that cuz it's mapping embryology or pregnancy differently. It's just saying, the net net takeaway for you is, God, look what God did. And a Christian should say, Amen, praise God, glory to God. God's amazing. I want to be more like Him and know Him better. And then scientists come in and say, look look at the ways God does that. At least that's what all the scientific revolution people said, because they were believers. Um, It's a different map. They're not mutually exclusive. All right. Well, We'll go ahead and wrap up. I've got a few more slides, but if we, if they're, if Jim finds, oh, he's going to find them for me. I have one quote I want to share with you real quick on this thing about supernature and nature, then we'll, we'll, we'll be finished. Let's go all the way to a big a black screen, one more, there's a sonogram, there's a Mayo Clinic book, here we go. Thank you. All right. Um, so this is John Walton, Hebrew language scholar, Old Testament scholar, Hebrew language scholar, very famous. Some of you I know have some of his books. So it's an essay called Origins and Genesis, Claims of an Ancient Text in a Modern Scientific World. What he's going to say in this is that our categories of natural and supernatural were not even concepts for the ancient Israelites. They don't have words like that. They don't think that way. That is a modern prejudice. I'm going to use the word prejudice, not just assumption, because I want us to see that as a little bit of a dangerous thing to just accept. God only gets the supernatural stuff. No, God gets your baby growing in your room. He gets the oak, little oak acorn turning into an oak tree. He gets gravity when I drop this. All that's God. Here's what he says. As we turn our attention to the Old Testament where the biblical origins account is located, Genesis one and two, we ought to begin by asking whether ancient Israelites classify phenomena into categories that comport with our modern distinction between natural and supernatural. A, it's a God thing stuff. Those who are inclined to reject scientific claims based on their understanding of biblical claims a lot of christians would do that sometimes do so on the basis of their belief that when the bible says that god did something that event must therefore be categorized as supernatural and by definition unexplainable to natural laws the bible said god did it but it didn't say how he did it there's a lot of ground under that that's a whole different map said he did it well you're assuming supernatural excludes nature right Second paragraph, ancient Israelites however, the people who got the the, the Torah originally, it's the book, before it's ours, believe that God is always active in the world in numerous and often undetectable ways. They do not have the categories of natural and supernatural. The operations of the world that we consider regular, predictable, and able to be described in scientific ways would have been considered no less the works of God in the ancient world. Since the Hebrew language does not have the words, does not have words that classify levels of causation the way we do today, the language of the Old Testament can't be used to confirm or deny our way of classifying cause and effect as either natural or as being the result of divine action alone. So that's a guy who knows a whole lot more about Hebrew, the Old Testament, than, than I do, saying that wouldn't even make sense to the original recipients of Genesis. The real enemy of faith, the real enemy of scripture is not science. It's not even science that maps nature or natural processes in different ways than scripture does. It's just a different map. The real problem is materialistic science. Science that assumes all there is is stuff. There's just molecules. Naturalistic or materialist science is a problem. It is very unbiblical. When science sort of gets beyond its kin, it's not studying mechanisms within the system of natural causation anymore. It's making philosophical and really, let's be real, theological statements beyond its legitimate sphere of work and saying that that they, they are somehow qualified to exclude God from the universe. Here's what we need to know though. We need to know that there are plenty I'd like for you to know, if you don't already, there are plenty of practicing scientists. I'm talking about in mainstream universities, not little, you know, boutique ones that are just evangelical young earth creationists. Mainstream places. Carolina, Duke, Harvard, Yale, State, places like that, lots of them. There's whole studies on this, academic studies, counting people, who, who are believers. Um, they're in all fields of science. Doesn't mean there aren't plenty who aren't believers or are agnostics sort or of. whatever, that's there too. But, but it, it's not just the case that the only people who accept the Bible are, are kind of in this you know, intellectual ghetto over here that, that isn't mainstream. There's a lot of people in mainstream science who accept the, the scriptures. They may not read them the same way some folks want them to in some texts. Maybe they're respecting the mapping differences a little more but they're believers nevertheless. And they would probably argue every bit as robustly as you believe, or I believe. Secondly, I'd like you to know as well, that there are, if this is intriguing to you, and you want to, how do I know more about this? We, we're not gonna be ready to defend somebody against a specific scientific thing in five seconds, right? This is complicated technical stuff. I'm just trying to frame the issue. If you, your loved one, a neighbor, a coworker, a friend is curious about this, and this seems to be their area of objection, and you want more material, there, there are great resources out there. I have a lot of books on this sort of thing, There's a website I would highly recommend called biologos.org, run by um, mainstream scientists who are also believers. Um, Francis Collins, arguably the most eminent scientist of our time, head of the Human Genome Project, um, at least one of the genome projects, um, National Institutes of Health, was one of the principal founders of this. Um, And and lots of other people that are very, credentialed in terms of science, but they're also believers. Um, The people at biologos.org don't think that science and religion are locked in some inevitable conflict or warfare. And that's kind of one of the problems that we're dealing with when we try to face these questions. People polarize it one way or the other instead of looking at the actual being careful and quiet and listening and reading God's books and keeping your sanity, and trying to just find the truth Um, that glorifies God. Thank you for your attention.